You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hey everybody, it is Wednesday evening, time for American Winer on podcastdetroit.com. How the hell is everybody doing? I am back after a week off. I went and saw Mike Doty down at the Blind Pig in Ann Arbor. Great show. Great show. It was sold out. Crowd was really into it. Very much worth uh, skipping last week to uh, head down there for that. Joining me in studio, my guest this evening, Mr. Lance Kissler, who is the casting director for KAMP. Uh, we are going to be talking about that and many, many other things because you are a uh, man of many talents and many pursuits. And uh, talents that's a that's a word. Yeah, okay. I like it. <laughs> and uh, you uh, and you you are one of the easiest uh, talkers that I've ever met, man. So I'm we're, I'm, I'm looking oh, forward wow. to this. This is going to be an easy hour to fill. Uh, so thanks for being here. Uh, how are you doing, man? Man, I'm good. First thing I want to do though is I want to say uh, hi to my wife since I left her home with the dog, and uh, got to make sure I give a shout out. Love you, babe. And uh, you know, thanks for having me in. It's yeah, gonna be a good time. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll say, but just just so to give everybody a little background, um, you're uh, Don Woolley's cousin, and Don Woolley is the guy has been on. He hasn't been on in a while, but uh, he has still been on. He holds the record for most of, uh, guest appearances on American Winer. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's how we uh, we were acquainted. True, and, um, and he's been telling me about you over the years and your your pursuits. You're living in New York and you're traveling all over these different places. And I was like, I got to get this guy in here um so here we are um i start the interviews off with the same question every time that question is where were you born i was born in u of m hospital ann arbor michigan technically my parents lived in plymouth at the time mm-hmm. and then we pretty shortly moved to south lyon and that was when south lyon uh was uh still before it was developed right like it was still pretty country at that point yes uh, to be honest yeah it was one grocery store you know, family-owned grocery store. Which um, one was it? Was it Showerman's? Showerman's. It was Showerman's. Yes. Oh I mean, God. my sister bagged groceries there. I mean, it was the place in mm-hmm. town. And yeah, it was good. I mean, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I, I, I moved to South Line in 94 and Showerman's was was still there. It was there for maybe a year or two and then it was gone. So, yeah. that, But early South Line and Showerman's are just, you know, simul, you know they, they, they go together. You can't think of one without thinking of the other. Big wheel. <laughs> and dancers' clothing. If anybody out there is ever f- is from South Line, they'll know the Big Wheel. And so, uh, what uh, what did your parents do for a living? Um, my father is a mechanical engineer. He designs um, uh, feeding machines and vibratory orienters, basically for automation. You know, along the same lines of what you guys or what you do. You know, in the Controls industry. Controls. Mm-hmm. But he's more on the mechanical side and he also designs overhead cranes. And my mother is, I guess the polite term would be a homemaker, mm-hmm. but a interesting woman in her own right, had, you know, really sweet lady, spent a lot of her time, you know, doing charity functions. Um, and she's big into like haunted houses and things like that. So she was a member of the local JCs. I don't even know if the JCs are still around. I, I know what they are, but I, I, you're right. I haven't heard about them in so long. Yeah, so. <laughs> I mean, she she used to run haunted houses and and little charity events and like um, in Salem in particular because it was close. And she ran uh, parades and things like that. And you know, but now she's like a permanent grandma, full time grandma. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, you grew up in South Line. Tell me about your childhood. Like what were you into? You know, what would you do? Oh, man. Fun? I mean, lived in the woods. So spent a lot of time 
you know, running around the woods, building forts, shooting at things with BB guns, um, driving tractors, riding four-wheelers, dirt bikes, and uh, and building things. Just – I built a trebuchet. Um, trebuchet meaning the thing – like a catapult. Like a right? catapult, yeah. How I, big was it? Massive. I actually – my father was building a pole barn and it had these huge six-by-sixes. You know, we have a two-story pole barn. And one day I was like – I'm going to take this lumber. I'm going to build this trebuchet. And then, of course, you know, I don't have any mechanical ability or any like serious knowledge at the time. I was probably 14. And I realized, I'm like, oh, it needs more weight to, to really fling. You need a large, uh, you know, percentage of the weight, you know, what multiple hundred percents over. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I kept taking more and more lumber. And I actually had to use the tractor. We had a tractor with the front end loader to lift the counterweight. To fire this thing. And my dad came home and he's like, what the hell did you build? <laughs> it was right in the middle of the driveway, like a total – I was going to say, you did all that in a day? You, you, it oh, took yeah. A day. Oh, my God. If you talk to Don, I mean Don and I used to cut like cords. My parents probably nowadays would go to jail <laughs> because I'm out there with a chainsaw, uh-huh. you know, just splitting wood, selling it, you know, plowing neighbors' driveways for money, always doing something. Didn't matter. We were always doing something nuts. Well, I gotta say, did you did you fire the trebuchet? Oh yeah, did, it worked. What did uh, what did you fire out of it? Like what you put uh, milk in? jugs? We took <laughs> milk jugs full of water and flung them. And you know, I used the front end loader. We ended up building a wooden box, you know, and loading it full of dirt and just flinging things. And my dad came home and he's like, stopped it. We lived off a <laughs> you know private road in a, at the end, and he stopped. He's like, what the hell did you build? And he actually thought it was really cool until yeah. he realized that I had ruined. Like $1,000 worth of lumber. Oh, my God. You know, these like 30-foot six-by-sixes and all this crap that he had ordered because, you know, I was like, well, i got to build it bigger. It's just sitting there. It's just, yeah, <laughs> you know. And, and, you know, he was like really angry, but at the same time, he was like – Impressed, right? He, yeah, he's yeah. like, dude, then, you know, that's pretty good. If your kid's going to like ruin lumber, you know, building a trebuchet with it is like probably the, the coolest possible way he could exactly. do it, right? Exactly. And like that winter, I remember, was that winter? Maybe a couple winters later, we had a pickup truck and my dad and I were doing donuts in the driveway to see who could get the most rotations. Uh-huh. And I smashed it into the porch. The trebuchet. <laughs> the, so. no, the truck. Oh, the truck. The truck. Oh, my God. And, and dad was just like, well, you lost. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was mad, but, you know, it was like, that's just the way it was. We were, we had a lot of fun. I got along great with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody stayed at my house. Don stayed weeks. I mean, we – it was a good place. Good life. No complaints. Uh, what kind of a student were you? I was a strange student because I, I actually um, – I was very sick as a kid. I, I don't I, – it's not that I don't talk about it very often, but I, I generally don't lead with it. You know, I, I had a, a pretty rare brain disorder. So I was home taught quite a bit. I, I did go to school certain years depending on – like I had surgery so that I was out. Um, I graduated 3.8. I, I did well in school, but I had a different experience. Right. And so um, mostly through high school, I worked full time. I worked at a golf course and I did my schoolwork after hours. Wow. So, I mean, I had a full time job. And did so, it backwards of what most teenagers do. Then, most of them go into school full time, working part time. So that must have been like well, how did that experience shape you? I mean, because you, you – Poorly to be honest because I, I got kind of – I had this thing about like, well, I can work, right? Because I was sick and so I couldn't go to school and then I was like, well, I can work. And so I always went to work. Like I never missed work. I was crew leader. I was I was 
you know, young, but I was in charge of everybody else basically. Mm-hmm. And I did all this stuff and, and I made a lot of money because in the 90s, there was this weird time and I know I'm not that old, but when you, when you look at the 90s, you know, it was like – I remember gas was 88 cents a gallon. I was making – I think it was like 12 bucks an hour. You know, like life was on fire for people in, it, who were working at, in the 90s because, you know, one paycheck was, you know, months of gas. Cars were cheap. Everything was cheap. It was just before things started getting like really expensive. Mm-hmm. You could get a, you know, Honda Civic for $11,000 nicely equipped and then things started going up and, you know, gas prices went up and pay. I mean. Try to find twelve dollars an hour now. Yeah, I mean, well, you can, you know? but I mean, that's considered a good wage. It's you a know, good wage. Twelve hours back in the nineties would have been like twenty some dollars now. So right, and so you know, for me, it was like, you know, here I am working at a golf course. As random as that seems, I loved the work because it was outside, and I got to, I did like all the, all the special projects. I built things, bridges, and and tea boxes, and I ran backhoes because I grew up doing this. Mm-hmm. You know. And so that's what I did. And the long and the short of it was I was a good student only because it came easy to me. Most things just kind of – I could just do it. Do it two hours – it took me two hours a week. With a, I had a tutor that came to the house. That was a requirement for the school. I had a tutor that came to the house. She would be with me one hour on Tuesday and then by Thursday, I would hand in all of my work for the week for her to grade. Hmm. So in basically one night – I would do – I had to do the same curriculum as everybody else at Southland High and I would just do it in a day and be done. Do you think that like – because you were homeschooled from kindergarten to 12th grade. No, right? no, no, no. I went I, – I was in regular, regular school completely until I think eighth grade. Oh, so middle school. Like middle school, yeah. Okay. And then um, high school, I attended part of my freshman year and – here and there, there was certain like I had to go in for like labs, things like that. So I, I mean, I still was a student. I I went to school, but I the majority of it was done at home, and it literally got to the point where I, I couldn't be bothered. I was busy. I had a right. job. You know, they're like, oh, you have to go do this lab, and I'm like, I gotta work. <laughs> you know, what I mean? and so it just got to be, you know, kind of a funky thing. But. Well, so you, I was gonna say, cause you, you, so you did get the experience then, the, the typical, you know. Grade oh, school yeah. experience, but then this this uh, the way that you you did high school. I mean, how did that like? I mean, that must have like changed you. And, and I, th- I think it because you do so much now, and I think it sounds like that experience kind of you know you said you would do your what took the other kids a week in in a day, and it was I think that sound it sounds like that maybe you were doing it that way because you didn't you you didn't need permission from anybody on how to do it. It was just. Like you said, I, 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 you knew what you were doing, yeah. and it came easy, and so you just went and did it. I mean, would you agree with that? You know, like did, did that? Uh, did it? Did it shape you into to in, into being the type of person you are now, the entrepreneur who just goes and does things? Well, I think uh. that the majority of it was, you know, my dad and my mom were both kind of like, you know, I was the youngest. They're like school's a formality in the sense that the structure of it is mostly BS. I mean, like you get there at seven o'clock, you, you dick around, you do this, you do this. And so much of it is fluff, gym class. And, and you know, I'm not saying it's not good and it is good. But like my dad saw, he's like, you know, I was an active kid. I'm splitting firewood. He's like, mm, you don't really need to play volleyball in gym class. 
for this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I even took a, a drafting class when my father was an engineer, and and so I'm like, what I learned in one season or one course of drafting, I had all I could pick up at home, in reality, and go down to the shop and see it built. And I'm not saying it was better, but for basic requirements. And when I graduated, I want to say it was only 19 credits you needed to graduate. It's much higher now. You could fail, like a whole bunch mm-hmm. back when I was in school, and it changed a little, you know, not long after I was there. Um, after I graduated, but you know, the long and the short of it was, it was like just, you know, doing the work, the math, you know, know, history, you're reading the book, you read the book, you answer the 10 questions at the end. And at the end of the, you know, semester, you do a, a, a test. Right. Okay. Well, done. You know, you could literally test out of classes when I was in school. That's basically what I was doing. I was just doing it like one week at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, but the things like math and certain parts of science, like I, I did struggle with like the chemistry or, or, you know, working on like, you know, which – what what thing bonds with what other thing. And I think in that instance, it would have been better to be in school. You know, seeing the teacher draw it up on the board instead of having to rely on the tutor or my father who's – you know, brilliant, or my grandfather, who's you know a, a PhD. I mean, he, he's a brilliant man, and but I had that. So for me, I had all that in the background. A lot of support. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But that, that's what I was getting at. The real world experience. It, it, there's a trade off there, but real world experience is way more valuable than it than it's portrayed as as far as the school system. I think is it's concerned. everything. I yeah. think for you know for most people, I say this all the time. I had a friend. I won't name you. Ron, but um, he went to school to be an engineer, went to Kettering. Great kid, awesome kid, but I, you know, he could not change his spark plugs. That's a true story. Didn't know how. So my brother-in-law, you know, now brother-in-law, we were just we were best friends in school. Um, you know, we changed his spark plugs, and I looked at this and said, "This is a kid that's going to school to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. Does not understand how a spark plug." What it does, why it's in there, how to get it out, you know, and it's not his fault. But who would you rather hire as an engineer, you know, the guy who actually understands what it does or the guy who read the book? And I, I'm not saying there's not a, a there's not room for both, but sometimes, you know, you need someone who knows all the fine details. And it's like you need a lawyer to go over the contract, mm-hmm. but it doesn't take a lawyer to know when you're getting screwed. That's tr- and, and that's you know. the, that's where the trade off comes in. It's like I, you mentioned uh, my uh, my my day job, and uh, I've noticed that the self taught guys are the usually the best guys because they they went at their own pace, they learned things as they uh, as they went, and the most important thing, they're not afraid to say what they don't know how to do or what they're not yeah. as familiar with, and that's how you learn. Guys that have the degree, I've noticed, tend to be more leery of saying that because like well you got a degree shouldn't you know everything you know i, th- I feel like that yeah. might be kind of the, the or you the came about there, it so. or you came about it naturally that's mm-hmm. the other thing it's like some people come into their you know like for example don being my my cousin mm-hmm. you know he got into the business that he's in you know kind of by matriculation worked his way into it and found out that he was really good at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Talk about natural. Yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. You know, I mean, the, guy, the guy's brilliant anyways. He always has been. He has an idyllic mind. He remembers everything he reads. You know, I mean, like, there's things in there that skills that I don't have. Um, 
and and to see how that worked out, it was a natural fit. And that's the funny thing, like you said about school, is that you can go to college and your assumption is that you're going to be amazing at whatever it is you you know you want to be. Maybe you want to be a, a teacher or you want to be a lawyer, but then you might find out that you know what the reality of it makes you miserable, and that's that does happen. You know what I mean? And I I think that into a certain regard, it's you know, I didn't know what I was going to be doing now that I'm doing. I had no idea. And and maybe it was for the best. Maybe it wasn't. But, you know, I'm good at it and, you know, I'm well respected in it. And I think a lot of times that seems to matter more than anything. Yeah. Other people yeah. are like, hey, I like working with that guy. It's how you're known. Not just who you know, but how you're known. That's yeah. It. It's really, I think in the end, it's where, you know, whether people want to do it again. Work you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, definitely. You yeah. Know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's Brian Singer, but he touched me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the end, it's all about your reputation. He made us our money back, but. <laughs> right. Yeah. He made us our money back, but we can never use him again, and our name is Mud. Yeah. So thanks, Brian. Well, Brian, I'll... I don't know you, and I'm kind of glad at this point, but, you know. but um, call me. Well, uh, we'll jump ahead then. Let's uh, jump. Because. Uh, you uh, you spent some time in uh, the the auto industry yourself uh, in your early Kinda, career. Yeah, weird. A weird part of the auto industry. What weird part was that? I worked in the automotive dismantling, automotive recycling side of things. I, I after I was working at the golf course, and my best friend, now my brother in law, was working for this company out of Brighton, and they were an automotive um, refurbishing company. They take salvage cars and rebuild them and sell them as salvage title vehicles. And they also had a thriving auto parts business. And it's a huge industry. It's a multi-billion dollar a year industry, which is selling parts to other people's cars. Makes sense. Everyone drives. Sooner or later, something breaks. And the long and the short of it is he he said, hey, Ford Motor Company is going to buy us. And we have a couple of openings. Are you interested? And I said, uh, I don't know. Am I? And he said, yeah, I think you should be, you know, take, you know, so I talked to my dad and everything and I said, hey, you know, there's this opportunity. He says, never hurts. You take the interview. So I took the interview and they hired me. And um, the long and the short of it was, it was a, it turned into a big operation. I mean, we, we had exclusive access to, you know, pre-production vehicles. We became like the dismantling company for all the car, whatever Ford needed dismantled. And then I worked my way from working in inventory and just putting parts on the shelves to being the auction buyer. I was in charge of buying for not just our site but sites across the country. We, we worked out this whole software where we could figure out our 30, 60, 90-day needs on auto parts and we would go to the auction and I mean it was insane. I was in my – God, I was in my early 20s, 1920 and I'm going to the auction spending a million dollars. Of other people's money. And I remember the first auction I went to and I'm just buying because I had an algorithm. It was like mm-hmm. every vehicle, I'd be like, oh, the hood, the headlight, this, this. And it would kick out a dollar amount of total value. And then, you know, we'd figure out what percentage of that value we could afford to spend because you have all your costs, you know. So you figure out your your EBITDA on this thing. And, and next thing you know, I'm like raising my hand to buy this car. I'm like, all right, I bought that car. I went to an auction in Ohio. I knew nobody there. I'd never been to it. I bought every car. Everyone. How every many? car. Like 200. Wow. It was insane. I bought every car in the entire auction. And I had literally 
grown men. I was a kid. I was a big kid, but I was a kid. And I had grown men like cornering me. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm like, dude, you know, what, what, you know, this is ridiculous. But, you know, how are you going to pay for this? And I'm like, it's an endless supply of money. Mm-hmm. Ford Motor Company. Yeah, it's like we, we don't run out of money. And so I came back the next week and I bought a ton of cars, a ton. And the big player in the area, still to this day, I believe, I'm trying to remember his name. A um, little town called, uh, oh man, not Canton. Maybe it was Canton, Ohio. Or was it Kenton? Kenton, Ohio. Brims, Brims Auto Salvage. If you're out there, Brim, <laughs> you know this guy comes up to me. He goes, "Listen, there's a car in this auction that I need. I need it. You have like I need it to finish a job. It was a Ford SVT Mustang." And I'm like, "He's like, do you do you have anything on?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna buy that car." He's like, "I need that car." I'm like, I don't give a shit. Like, sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm not, not a mean guy, but I do not like being, you know, like ordered around or, or bullied. It just doesn't do well with me. And so he just gave me that look. He was like, listen, man. He he changed his tone. He's like, I have a customer that's been waiting for one of these for a really long time. And it would mean a lot to me. I need this car. Can you cut me a break? And I did. I cut him a break. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, him and I had lunch. You know, he took me down to his shop, introduced me to his employee. I mean, it was like it was like a kind of like an interesting family. They hated me, but you know, it was it was an interesting thing. Nice gesture. It was, and yeah. and that went on for a little while, and then uh, and then because you know businesses are what businesses are, they they closed our site because the union. The UAW came in and unionized the shop. And out of self-preservation, Ford Motor Company or I'm sorry, Greenleaf because they had sold – Ford Motor Company sold to a group of investors, closed the Michigan site to keep the union from spreading to their 32 other sites, Mm -hmm. which would technically be union busting and probably be illegal. But because they sold the company to a different group, they had no contract and therefore they could do it. And we all lost our jobs. And, and so, how long were you there total? I want to say it's like five years, but I can, I'm not a, you know I'm not great at keeping track. It was around today. five years. I there. think so. And it, but I mean, we were making a ton of money. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like a lot of money, especially at that age. And we were having a lot of fun. Yeah, and then and then all of a sudden it was just bam, it's over, gone. Right? Yeah, gone. So did you become? Because what you did after that, and this is what's so interesting about you is you've jumped from career to career. Yeah. And I don't know how interesting, but after this, you be, was that when you became a personal trainer? It was. So yeah. tell us about that then. So I'll try to. I'll do it briefly. Um, I I was I was heavy into working out at the time, and and because I was heavy into it, I was heavy into getting knowledgeable about it. And I was working out at this gym in South Lyon, the powerhouse gym, and I knew the owners, and I knew the old trainer, and the old trainer, um, his daughter had some issues. And he was he was a retired drill sergeant, like legit, was a drill sergeant, retired, was training people. And he was doing okay and he was leaving. And the owner, I, came, I went in there one day in the daytime and the owner's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, man, I got laid off. And he's like, hmm, will you ever think about training people? You know, and I'm like, well, yeah, not, no. <laughs> he's like, well, yeah, you, you, know, you might really consider it because I know you, you, you help out a couple of people and I know you got along really well with, with Dave, the trainer. And he's like – He's leaving. 
and his clients are going to need people. And I'm like, man, I don't know. And uh, he's like, well, talk to him or whatever. So we talked and next thing you know, I'm a trainer. And I liked it. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it was, it was, it, it's really rewarding to take somebody who's asking for help and be like, I can help you. And not by infusing money or donating your time or your resources, but literally just like almost like grabbing their hand and being like, I'll get you across this bridge. Mm-hmm. It's cool. You know, just follow me. And and that went on for years. I did that for like, oh, God, I don't know. I, I think it was five. No, no, 10 years. You're training for 10 I years. Was, I think it was 10 years. And, you know, it's a it's a fantastic thing. If you respect the people, most trainers just want the dollars. They want X amount per hour, easy money, right? That was never my mentality. I actually liked my clients. I thought they were good people. Um, I tried to keep my rates low. I tried to make it accessible. Um, and I was successful at it. And new trainers would come and then they'd go because I would – I had all the business. But the problem was that gym owners – are they're, they're horrible people and the, for the most part because most of them are gym rats who just want to own the place they want to spend time in or they're there to make money off you know if you're if you're in a gym there's no money in gyms you know you don't make a ton of money running gyms unless you run seven of them so when you figure when you figure that out it's like owning a it's like owning a, a subway subway restaurant you don't make any money unless you're the sandwich artist and the manager and cleaning up at the end of the day. So then you end up having to own seven of them so you can afford the staff to run them. And that's what I found out. Mm-hmm. You know, I was making more than the owner. Well, then, of course, they want their cut. You know, so then they then they sell and the new owner comes in and he's like, well, we're going to take 50% of your profits. I'm like, sorry, bud. Not interested. So I left. And – if you know you're from the local area, the you know the South Lion Brighton area, all the gyms closed. You know, I did notice that. Yeah, yeah there's I mean, even where I'm at now in Novi Wixom area. Uh, there's it's there's chains. That's what it is. You yeah. don't see, you know, I, like I, I haven't seen a powerhouse in a long time. Well, there's a powerhouse in Novi, but it's it's huge, which is one of the you oh, know. Yeah, it's a Fountain Walk. Yeah, yeah. it's like Lifetime, yeah, that's but right. yeah. but the little known fact, and I probably shouldn't say this, but I will is. My understanding, I don't want to defame anybody, but my understanding is they have a lot of partners. And that's one of the things that gyms do. They get fresh infusions of money from new partners. That's what's happened at the South Lion Gym over the years, including a friend of mine who is a partner in that gym, is they they bring in new people who they bring new money. They make a little upgrade. New treadmills. Hey, everybody, come. New treadmills. And the problem is that only works for so long. You know, It's a very finite business. X percentage of the population are even interested in working out. Of that population, this percent, a small percentage of that has the time. Of that, a percentage has the money. And of that, a percentage actually has the motivation. And when you break that down, you know, you're better off selling cars. Everybody needs a car. You know, selling a gym and then God forbid you're not in like their line of trajectory. You know, if you're off the beaten path. And and they never you know South Line the traffic's terrible. Mm-hmm. If it's the wrong direction for you, you're probably not going to go. Now maybe fine they might collect your, your membership and you're never going to go, but that's not a good client. That's a liability. Mm-hmm. That's the person who's going to tell their friends, you know, like yeah that place sucks. I've been paying thirty bucks a month and I never go. The gym doesn't suck. You suck. Mm-hmm. 
but that's the way it goes. So 10 years as personal trainer. Yes. Uh, and then – Still ripped. No. <laughs> and then uh, comes kind of. KAMP. Now, am I, is, that is – it is a KAMP. It's not well, camp, it's, right? we, we call it camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it camp productions. My, that was set up by my business partner originally. It's actually his, his initials. Um, his name is – Peter, Michael, Anthony, Kalen. And so we, he just reversed it. So it's Kalen, uh, Anthony, Michael, Peter. Um, and he had already had that business entity set up. You know, the, the corporation was already set up under that name. And so we just kind of like co-opted it. We said like, all right, well, we'll just, you know, restructure it and, and add me to the, to the fray. Mm-hmm. So how did that come about? Because it's actually a very interesting story. I, I talked to you last week. Yeah. And if you could tell like about the Russian script and all yeah, that. Yeah, I'll give you the short version. Um, again, I'll try to watch because we, we only have this room for an hour. Yes, we do. And those we're, we're doing good though. three minutes late. <laughs> we, uh, we still have about half an hour though, yeah. so we're doing good. Well, so the, the, the short version was while I was training, I, I enjoy writing. I enjoy creative writing and I think that, you know – you know, to me, it's semi-cathartic. I like writing anything from poetry to songs to, you know, stories. And I wrote this story. I, I got into um, the Russian aristocracy. It's a fascinating time in the world. Everybody who's out there hearing this right now, when you hear the word Russia, you have a totally different thought process than you would have maybe 10 years ago. The, the you know, the wealthiest family in the world at the time, the Romanovs, Ran Russia. They owned more land than anybody else, and they had what they call palace embankment in St. Petersburg and all over Russia. It was just this incredible wealth, and and you know, maybe they, maybe they were horrible people. I don't really care as much as I cared about like just the fascinating. You know, the Hermitage is a museum full of art, and if you spent one minute in front of each piece of art just in that one building, it would take you something like twelve years. To look at it all. I, I may be wrong on that. Don, you would probably correct me. Um, but a lot. It's a lot. And so I was fascinated and basically they were murdered. They were slaughtered by the Bolsheviks. They were shot in a, in a cellar. And, you know, the dynasty died. And as I was telling you, I mentioned, you know, it, Russia still is a monarchy. They, they would be able to ascend to the throne. But the living members signed a pact saying that they wouldn't. They would abdicate the throne and they would just let it go to – you know, like the form of government they have now. And I found that amazing. I found it insane to me that, you know, after this many years that somebody in that lineage hasn't come forward and said, no, nope, that shit's mine. But they haven't because they'd know they'd be killed. I mean, like, you know, yeah. no one is handing you that kind of power. Yeah, good luck going up against Putin. Yeah, yeah and even, that, it, you yeah. know, even if it was just Gorbachev or anybody else, I mean, you know. It, well, what's it's, what's interesting about that point is that if they were gonna, there was a moment when it the Soviet Union dissolved. Right, that was when it would have happened. Exactly, because that was when they were at their weakest. So now it's like, I mean, they they built themselves, you know, back up into not the Soviet Union, but and they still suck. Know. They still can't yeah. keep the power on. But you yeah, know. I think their their economy is like equivalent to Iowa or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so it's pretty pathetic. nothing against Iowa, but yeah, no, I'm sorry, Iowa, <laughs> you're really not that great. No. Um, so the long and the short of it was I wrote this story basically that involves – and I don't want anyone to steal my idea, but it is copywritten. So good luck um, about what would happen basically if there, if an heir to the throne were to not necessarily come forward but kind of be slid in mm-hmm. almost unbeknownst to himself. Like, like, hey, Alex is the king. You know, like he pulled the sword out 
and then what would happen and the factions that would be involved. And and so I wrote this. And I my mother, who has a lot of interesting friends, and she's a voracious reader. I mean, she reads everything under the sun. Um, she I sent it to her. Like just a rough outline. Um and she goes, you know, this is actually really neat because I had written it with a factual timeline, like the, the, the dates and everything I took from the history books, wrote them out on a, law, on a literally a huge piece of paper. And I just drew a, a divergent line that said like, OK, here's the date that he would have been born. These people were slaughtered at this date and, and here's how old these descendants would be as of right now. Mm-hmm. And I drew it all out on this timeline. And that's where the story picked up. And so my mom had this friend, my now business partner, who was a casting director for many years. Um, he owned a very profitable, very uh, well-respected cast, commercial casting agency in New York and then had moved out to L.A. to do casting at Sony Picture Studios. So he was doing Spider-Man and, and you know stuff like that, which is not nearly as much fun, by the way, as commercials. Um, and he got an offer to be the casting director for – the in-house casting director for the second largest ad agency in the world. They were opening a new office in Manhattan, right in Tribeca, um, you know, completely outfitting the, you know, the, the building for this. And he said, man, you know, he was retired and he said, would you be interested? He asked me because we've been writing together, you know, like – on weekends and at night, we were on the phone and going over scripts and we wrote – actually, I think – God, I think we have four between the two of us. I mean like him and I together. Mm-hmm. He had one that he had already written and um, as this was happening, the the gym that I was at, I was at Powerhouse in Brighton at the time and they closed, like literally just closed. And so I was like, oh, balls. What am I going to do? So I asked my wife. I go, what do you think? You know, She's like, give it a shot. If you want to do it, do it. I said, well, I'm going to have to go to New York. And I said, so she's like, well, go, see what's going on. And if it's good, we'll move there. And so I went for – I was there for a year without my wife. I mean I she she let me go basically. I, I don't mean to sound – you know, make it sound that way. But she was extremely supportive of it. And it was hard. I mean it's really hard to be away from somebody, you know, for a year. Um, I was living with my business partner and his husband in Manhattan in their two-bedroom condo and, you know, it, it worked. You just got to it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, I mean and, and I'm – Like every, the other two careers, you just jumped into it, right? And I'm a prick. I am like <laughs> – no, I mean I am. My business partner, if he, if he ever listens to this, he'll tell you. I mean like I just – I just take over. I, You know, I mean like he, he taught me what I needed to know and I – it's – I actually almost like pushed him out of doing things. I was just like, just give, just give this to me. I'm going to – I just do it. Mm-hmm. And like I would go into the office and I'd stay late and I would go down to agents' offices that I – you know, that I wanted to start using for talent and I would just introduce myself and I'm just like, you know, screw this. And I would march around the building. I mean these are like – I'd go to – because we have all these different like, you know, subsets of this agency and in, in different parts of the city. I mean we have like five different buildings throughout New York with all these different little agencies. I just go show up. Hi. You know, and I, I went to a, a, our print director and I was like, hi, Julie. Hi. And by the way, hi, Julie, if you're listening. Um, and I said, uh, I said, hey, 
your print shoots, who casts them? Well, usually the photographers and blah, 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 blah. I go, well, what if I want to cast them? She goes, well, the photographers would never. She goes, the photographers want to know, you know, they want to work with their people. And I'm like, tell them no. Tell them you want to use me. And she's like, well, no, but they get to choose. And I go, no, no, they don't. You're hiring the photographer. She told the photographer you want me to cast it. And she goes, well, that'll never work. I said, all right, I'm, I'm already done with this shit. Like, no, that's just not the way it works. If you're hiring somebody, they do what you want. That's just the way I see life. I mean, and if that person tells you no, then you can fuck, you can hire somebody else. So what I did was I just literally went online. I was like, who's the big, biggest effing photographer in town? I sent him an email. <laughs> uh, Whitman, his last name is Whitman. Now, I'm trying to remember his first name off the top of my head. Um, and Robert, Robert Whitman. I sent him an email. I want to talk to you. He's like, all right. I went to his office. And he invites me in. I'm like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, I'm like, I got to ask you a question. He's like, what? I said, what do you, you know, like you get, I mean, these people get like $30,000, $40,000 a day to shoot. I'm like, so if I came to you and I'm like, listen, I'm going to pay you your day rate, but someone else is going to cast it. Would you do it? And he's like, yeah, dude. I'm like, that's what I thought. I'm like, well, so you wouldn't have any problem if I told you. He goes, I'm a photographer, man. He's like, you find the beauty in whatever you're shooting. He's like, yeah. He's like, I would love to be the one that casts it because I get to charge you for it. He's like, that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, no shit. Of course you want a subcontract because you're going to get a 20% markup. I'm like, I'm going to take that out. So I marched right back. And by the way, he gave me – he was Prince. I'm a big Prince fan. Mm-hmm. Um, he was Prince's original photographer before he was famous. And he has all the original photos. He actually just did like a big you know, thing in L.A. with all – after Prince died, right? Well, he gave me one of those prints and signed it. Wow. It's like one of my prized, you know, like curio possessions is this, you know, before he was famous. He's like 19 years old, huge afro, signed by Rob. I mean, he's like the coolest dude. And that was it. I went back to the print, uh, our print department, and I'm like, total bullshit. Put their freaking thumbs in the vice and tell them who you're going to use. Mm-hmm. And it worked. And so that was right at the beginning. You yeah. Did that right like, at the beginning. Like, yeah, I'm like, how do you tell me that these people, like, I'm sorry, they don't have that much power. I mean, yeah, I'm a great photographer. Yeah, until you're not anymore. You and, know? And just so we're clear, like, because this, this is like, these are photo shoots that we're talking about right now, yes? Um, no, this was at the time, we were, it was everything. It was everything. I mean, I was doing voiceovers. We were doing on camera. You know, we were doing, you know, like motion, mm-hmm. um, all for commercial. But, you know, I hadn't, I wasn't grabbing the internal you know, internal to the agency, like I wasn't doing the print work. You know, like I'm like, why am I not getting print work? And it was just this thing where people are like, oh, we, you know, we use – we let the photographer. And I'm like, you let. Like you're the manager of that department and you let the other person tell you how it's going to go when you have a professional casting director one floor down from you who could do this? At a much cheaper rate. Why don't you tell us about the casting process then? Because like I'm kind of it's so you got to kiss my ass really hard. (laughs) (laughs) But like because you said you you know you wanted to be in charge of that. So what does that entail? Like what exactly do you do with that? Well, really, you know the best way, the way that 
I mean, it really depends on the project, depends on how involved people are. But the best way is that the, the people who write the spot, right, the creative director, because you usually have a creative who like, you know, concepts this thing. They come up with it. They dream it out of their head. And then it gets approved and then it goes to a producer. And the producer, you know, I, the, you know, Michigan terms here, general contractor, who gets everybody together. And what I had going at the time because I was in-house was that the creatives were actually in the building. So I would just like toddle my little butt off to them and be like, so what are you thinking about for that role? Right? Like we did – I did Liberty Mutual a lot. Um, you know, like they're standing in front of the Statue of Liberty or whatever. I'm like, OK, so you got like husband and wife. What are you picturing? You know, like is it, is it like skinny, dorky husband and, and you know, like is it is it a beautiful bombshell wife or are they just an average couple? Or I mean like what's the dichotomy here? There's always something. You wrote it with a purpose. You know, is he supposed to be like the, I'm sorry, honey, or is he supposed to be like, yeah, right, like I'm listening to you. You know, there's always something, mm-hmm. right? You know how it is. If you know, you're a creative person, the vision is much beyond what's necessarily on the paper. And and so I made kind of a lack of a better term. I made a name for myself as actually like giving a shit and going and doing that and then, and then seeking out. And I would call through hundreds of headshots. The typical way used to be like, you call an agent and you're like, hey, here's the role. Send me 10 people. Well, what I would do is I'd call and say, hey, send me headshots. Send me 100 of them and I'll pick 10 people. And, and I just kind of flipped the script. I was, I was like, I want to I be ahead of the game. Like I literally wanted everybody who came in to be awesome. Like, like make it so hard. You're like, God, Lance brought in 10 guys for that one role and, and I don't know which one is better. Like that was the key mm-hmm. and that's what we did. And and Peter and I would go through, you know, and, and you know, Chris Peter was involved in this as well, you know. And in particular, like I would do a lot of the on-camera stuff because I liked running the equipment. I liked running the camera and setting up the lights and then Peter would be doing voiceovers, you know, because we were, we were really busy. You know, we'd have, you know, I'd have 60 people coming in for an audition on camera and Peter would have 50 people coming in to read you know, voiceover scripts. And we were just like, you know, cycling all these people through our, our office. It was really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, t- tell us about some of the projects you worked on. I mean, oh, I mean, God. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's so funny because I, I have them on. We did all the – we did a ton of Lysol. We did a ton of uh, Liberty Mutual. We did PayPal. We did Dos Equis Beer. You know, the most interesting man in the world, John – well, you know, like his actual name is Jonathan Goldsmith, Gold, Goldstein, Goldsmith, I think. Um, you know, he used to sit in my office mm-hmm. and wait for his turn because we had a stage right outside my office. Does he live up to the to the hype? You know, it's a funny thing. He's he's an older actor who had retired. He was living on a boat. He was like living in his boat for fun because he was retired. And his wife is his agent. Hmm. And and you know, she saw this posting like you know, interested man. You know, whatever. Like we needed a a. Whatever the you know description, I came in after they had already picked him. I was going to say, yeah, because did you guys come up with that? But it was no, yeah. our agency did, but they had already picked him and they casted him, and he his wife sent him to it, and then he became the guy. And so when they needed to shoot certain things, now if they needed to be on location, they didn't shoot on our stage. But when they needed, they shot on our stage, and you know, it was stuff like that. It was a lot of fun. I did, and but I do a lot of voices. I mean, like. And, and a lot of drugs. I did. We well, did Claritin for years. Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
God. Took me a second there. I, I do a lot of voices and I do a lot of drugs. Yeah, a lot of drugs. <laughs> I do a lot of drug drugs. commercials. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of drug commercials. <laughs> a lot because that's obviously what's really popular. But like you know, recently I you know like Rite Aid and things like that are things that I'm working. On. But one of the things that I do now that I moved back to Michigan, I do a lot of a pharmaceutical. Random drugs, drugs that I like, I don't even remember the names of mm-hmm. because they're just like, um, say like Merck out of out of New Jersey. You know, they they're a huge medical company, but they can have four or five different names for one drug, and it's marketed under you know different um, generic names and things like that. And so, even though they might be the manufacturer or or Amgen, you know, is another big pharmaceutical company, and and so they have different names. So we might do one shoot that covers. Three or four different names, depending on the market it's in, Latin America or you know Europe or whatever. And so I don't. Sometimes I don't even know the name, and I don't really care. What I care about is I just did one today. They said we want a female voice that is like a non-distinctive accent, like not British, not Australian, but something like you. You just can't put your finger on like it, like Ariana Huffington. Yeah, I mean, actually, I can't remember the name of the woman. I could look it up, but I don't, I don't want to be rude and pull my phone up. But they, you know, they gave me a like a comparable, and I I pulled her up, and she was a uh, like an MSNBC, you know, like international host. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, okay, so that that's what I worked on finding people who were like, um, you know, native to another country but speak fluent English, and trying to get you know something just a little because you know everyone does British Jaguar and all that. They do British. It gets old. So, you know, like I got some really like interesting like Israelis and, and you know, like again, in, in people now, they're, they're looking to not hit stereotypes. Like, you know, oh, we need an Indian person to play a doctor. It's, it's just played out. So they're looking for like a nondescript. Like, wow, that's, that's interesting. Where do you get that voice? And it's fun. That to me is actually the fun part of my job now is that people call me now for things like maybe they can't find. You know, or or whatever else, and I I just have a I have a better process flow. I'm not telling all the rest of the casting directors out there how I do it, but my my process flow is different. I just I broke out of the standard because there is a standard way of doing it, you know, and that's how rate cards are built. You know, where you know we do this many preps and this many casts and this booking and this upload fee, and I said, you know, Peter and I were talking about it one day. I'm like, does it need to be this way? Like it doesn't always fit. And and why do we need to, you know, like the way it would work is I'd be like, okay, so that's two preps and two casts and then two stage fees and then one upload fee and then a booking fee. And they, you know, what's the total on that? Oh, it's X. Oh, well, our budget, can we negotiate down? Okay. I'm like, how about this? What do you need? Well, we have three principles, two backgrounds and a voiceover. What, you know, what, what do you need? Okay, well, how different are they? You know, well, we have two Caucasian women, one African American male, and a Latino. Um, okay, that's you know, I mean, the two Caucasian females are really just one role, and then you know, like if you're only looking how, how many men do you really need to see to fill that role? I mean, he's just a coach, so it's like it's not like he has to be like the most beautiful man in the world. I mean, so okay, boom, and then I just bid it as to what I know it's going to take for me to do it mm-hmm. instead of sticking to the regular. It could be a five thousand dollar difference. It could be a ten thousand dollar difference. I mean, I've done castings that are forty thousand dollars. I mean, it's you know for for a commercial. Have you done any Super Bowl commercials? Have I had one that runs in the Super Bowl? 
I think, I do think one of our KY, we did KY, um, and I do believe one of those ran in the Super Bowl, but I also, one of our spots got pulled, like it offended somebody. Hmm. I don't remember which one it was now, but it wasn't like, you know, I mean, I just casted it, but like, you know, they were like, oh, you can't. People got all honked off. I want to say it was one of our KY spots. Really? Yeah, and they were huh. like, ah, no. And it like – it they just pulled it. They pulled it. Huh. Well, this is – because this is why I was asking you earlier about the whole homeschool experience and sort of the, the, the different school experience in general that you had and, and learning how to go your own way because everything that you've said so far with every career that you had, you went in and immediately said you, – you took a look at how things were done and you said, okay, I'm going to do this my way. And I'm going to make it better, and here's how. And then you didn't ask for permission; you just fucking did it, right? So within the <laughs> confines of legalities, I mean, yeah, yeah, or or constraints. You know, you work in a gym; you have to follow the owner's rules to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But, but you you were you've always been like that. It sounds like you yeah. Just, I mean, but I think that again, that comes from you know my father. He's you know people come to him with a problem. You know, like, oh, we need to. You know, he he just built this machine. They they needed to feed these parts. Okay, As a matter of fact, I remember specifically. I have a bottle of water in front of me. When I was a kid, I don't know if anyone remembers this. Pepsi two liters used to have this weird black cup on the bottom hmm. of Pepsi two liters. Look it up, everybody. They did. Somebody had to make the machine that took a big gondola, a big bucket of those black cups. And flip them upright so they could have glue sprayed in them. And why the hell they couldn't figure out how to make the bottle stand up on its own? I don't know, but they didn't. And that was the type of thing my, you know, they'd just bring it to him, be like, hey, we need up. You make up. <laughs> Dad's like, all right, yeah, I'll make it up. And, and that's what he, you know, the, you know, the military needed to, to decommission soldiers. So dump all of your ammo in that bucket. And of course, what do you have to do with it? Sort it back out. Like you would think they'd be like, all right, soldier, it's your last day of doing whatever the hell we say. So you're going to put your nine millimeter in there and your two, two threes over there. Nope. Dump it all in the bucket. And we'll sort it out later. So what do they do? They call my dad's company and, and say, can you build a machine that can like, you know, sort this and then put it in, you know, like into a box so that we can recommission, you know, we put it back. I'm like, yeah, we can do that. And, and then you literally just have to figure it out, which is how I grew up. I grew up with my old man. You know, holding this weird object. I'm like, what is that? He's like, oh, this is a opinion ring from the back end of a, you know, a Chevy truck. And, you know, Detroit Axle needs to figure out a way to get these from, you know, the the vibratory unit that takes the burrs off of it into the machine that that cleans off all the residual, you know, walnut shells. <laughs> like, really? Like, it's he's like, yes, it's that. Ridiculous, but that's what we're going to do. And they have to always face the right direction so that they can be picked up and pressed, you know. And, and I'm like, oh, wow. How do you figure out which you – know, how's the machine know? You got to find an – you know. And so that's how it went. Wow. Well, one last question about casting. We're, we're getting to the, uh, to, the, to the end here. But um, uh, what is the one thing about casting, the casting process that people don't realize or maybe aren't familiar with um, that sticks out to you? Well, that sticks out the most is that – you don't get you, – you barely get noticed. So for example, if we did a voiceover and you read a script for me, full script, like you know, a 30-second commercial and I have you read it. The creative goes, listen, 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 listen. Eh, that guy sucked. Next. Mm-hmm. Like you get to do it. You'd be like, 
Hi, my name is Lance Kissler. I'm reading for Claritin. Claritin can help you with it. That's as far as they go. If they don't like what you – now, your very next read, you could say, Claritin can help you with this. Doesn't matter. They didn't get past the first one. Mm-hmm. And even if you went, Claritin helps me with everything I've got. You know, It makes no difference if on the third take you sounded like Morgan Freeman or James Earl Jones. It makes no difference because they didn't get past your first read. Mm-hmm. Because they literally just – I mean it's that subjective. Same thing. You come on set and you show up in wardrobe. Like I've had people like, oh, you're going to be playing a doctor, right? Hey, cool. People show up with stethoscope. I'm not shitting. I mean like They good. bring their own costumes. Yeah, man. Wow. Good on them. You know I mean? They show up. We take their headshot. The first – the presentation of their video is their headshot. Then the video is you know, kind of like layered behind it. You click on their headshot and then the video plays. Um, pretty standard casting software feature. Guess what? Don't like his face. Don't like his nose. Uh, you know, uh, glasses, uh, curly hair. Eh. I like that guy, dude. Curly hair guy nailed it. Mm-hmm. Nailed it. Or here's the crazy part: he is a doctor in New York. Not uncommon. Mm-hmm. These people, I mean, like they want to become celebrities, so they're like, or they want to become actors, or maybe they just love it. And they really are a doctor. I'm like, dude, you got this nailed. That's the thing that people don't understand. To all the people out there who think they're going to become a celebrity, first of all, 99.9. And if you've all been watching the news, you see that you can buy your way into Harvard. (laughs) But but more importantly, most of Hollywood is somebody's kid. Mm -hmm. That's the way it works. Walk around an agency. The, you know, the head creative is usually the son of somebody else who's been in the business for a really long time. Because that's the way it goes. True creativity. Those people are usually out shooting their own stuff. Dreaming in their basement. You know, really, quite honestly, trying. But the the people who get the stuff, you know, it's like most people who are casting directors, they want to say, oh, I casted that. I've casted stuff that I don't even take credit for. I don't care. Because it's not, uh, you know, like the job is to find the talent. It shouldn't be... To make a name. You know what I mean? That's not – that's what people don't understand about the business. Most people who are casting are there to meet celebrities and you know rub elbows. Celebrities suck for the most part. Some of them are really nice. I've met a few that are really, really nice. Um, but for the most part, I wouldn't want their life. I want their money. <laughs> but even that is, you know – it's unethical. Comes with its own baggage. Yeah. Well, no, it comes with treating a lot of other like. I, and I, you and I br- touched on this briefly. How can you be a member of a union, SAG-AFTRA? You're a member of a union that has dedicated rates, six hundred and twenty-eight dollars for an industrial category one, right? Unless you are Matt Damon, then we negotiate. How does that happen? And I have I, I have massive problems with that only from the aspect of if we're reading that same Claritin spot and it's you and you maybe you practiced or maybe you're just really good and you nail it. You nail it. And then Seth Rogen rolls in and he reads it. And I don't tell anybody who, that it's Seth Rogen. I'm only saying that because you look a little like Seth Rogen. I've gotten that before. Yeah. yeah. It's not a bad thing. It's not a great thing, but it's not a bad thing. But, uh, you know, if I don't say – and this is Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen, people. And they listen to him. Is he worth $4 million? Mm-hmm. Hell no, he's not. His name is worth that. But his ability to read a script? 
not so much. Well, hell, Matt Damon was the voice of something until recently. He, we, I didn't even know he, it was him. Yeah, Matt, we had Matt Damon as a TD Ameritrade. He was the voice of TD Ameritrade for quite a long time, and they finally caught him. He was he was working on a film in uh, in uh, China. I think it was called The Great Wall or something like that, and it was just it was non conducive. And basically, it just came around to the fact that no one knew it was him. Mm-hmm. I mean, focus groups are a good thing. Yeah, well, so but that's the point. Is like, what's the point of spending four million dollars if nobody's even going to know it's the per, it's the name that you spent four million dollars on? Well, especially when the when the comedy of the situation is that TD Ameritrade purports, and then they're a client. I don't want to bash them because they, I mean they're a good service, but they're in the business of helping you make more money. Why would you waste it on the back on the front end? Like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I was very happy because the guy who got it, and I'm drawing <laughs> terrible. I'm drawing a blank. I can picture his face. Changed his life, dude. Mm-hmm. Like he ma- he he makes good money. Yeah, he needed the job. So. He he needed the job. He earned the job because that dude walked through the cold. New York City is not a fun place, you know, to to wander around. I mean, it's beautiful when you're on vacation, but if you live there, you're you're hiking up and down steps in the rain and the cold and whatever. And this dude was a real actor. He showed up for auditions, and he won. Like, good for him. That might be the last job he books. Yeah. Well, we could keep talking about You're this damn for, right we could. for a long ass time, man. But we got to wrap up. Um, what can I say, Lance, dude? Th- it, it went off exactly mm-hmm. as I knew it was. It went by very quickly. Thank you so much for coming in, man. I'm happy to do it. I bring my A game. Um, you know, maybe next time you challenge me a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> now that we've got the uh, now that we've got the, the the backstory down, and we we know you a little bit, we'll have you in. What's and we'll- the bell for? Uh, they have those in every studio. I think it's just sort of like a hey type thing. Somebody gets off oh, a good really? joke. Or is that what that's for? I like it. Something like oh. that. Different shows use it for different things. It oh, depends. cool. There you go. Oh. Um, but uh, so, yeah, thanks again for coming in, man. Um, uh, we'll have you back sometime, and uh, we'll talk about something right. else. Everybody have themselves a nice night. And uh, I will be back next week. My guest will be author Mary Emmerich. We're going to talk about her uh, career and uh, – Looking forward to that. So everybody have a great evening. This has been American Winer on podcastdetroit.com.